Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and, in turn, how our clients view us. It is my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? I aim to bring my audience new voices from around our industry, interesting people with diverse backgrounds. Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have these next two guests, Jeremy Jennings and Brian Hackathorne, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Jabberbox, as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Jabberbox is a connected ecosystem of on-demand private workspace available in public spaces such as airports, hotels, commercial hubs, and retail outlets. Really the next generation of the modern phone room. These guys have some amazing clients like the NBA, Indeed, Audible, GM, and many airports nationally and now internationally. Jeremy Jennings is a seasoned executive turned entrepreneur with over 25 years of experience in the fashion, retail, and commercial interior industries. He is a graduate from the University of Albany SUNY. He was a principal with several commercial furniture dealers in New York City, Workwell Partners, and Empire Office, which is how I met him. Jeremy has a passion for technology and how it can evolve the way people work. Brian Hackathorne has also worked in the commercial furniture world, but also as a designer for several architecture firms. He was an associate principal at Studios Architecture, where he helped lead the design for several technology headquarters such as Shutterstock, Dropbox, and Mashable. His work has won many awards and has been published countless times in Interior Design Magazine. On a side note, Brian's wife, Hannah, went to school with my wife for interior design at the School of Visual Arts, and Hannah worked at my firm, Mancini Duffy, a while back. They have a beautiful daughter, Alexa. Boys, thank you both for agreeing to be here on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, definitely. So this is the first time I'm interviewing two people at the same time, so we'll uh, have to figure this out here as we go. See how it goes. <laughs> but so let's start a little bit about, um, you know, kind of each one of you, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of cycle back and forth. Um, Jeremy, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood? <laughs> uh, how long is the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you want. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I, I went to school in upstate New York. I was born in Taos, New Mexico, and had moved around a lot of different states uh, prior to going to school. Uh, moved into New York City right out of school and went into the world of retail. Actually started as an assistant buyer in the executive training program at Lord & Taylor. Worked my way up to buyer and eventually became uh, essentially a brand manager, launching a private label men's sportswear for Lord & Taylor. Uh, tapped at 25 years old to uh, develop this program and got to travel around the world with two designers and a project manager. Pretty amazing experience. Very cool. And Brian? I was born and for the most of my life raised in Iowa. 
primarily living in Iowa City, where the University of Iowa is. So I grew up in a college town. Uh, my background, my, my mother worked in real estate for the bulk of her career. And when I was in high school, married a gentleman who is a design-build contractor. And that's really where I developed my passion for design and found my way into interior design school in Chicago after spending a few years at the University of Iowa and oh, really nice. found my calling and passion. Got it. Okay. Oh, that makes sense then. <laughs> so Brian, um, what did you do as a kid growing up and sort of were there any hints that you would become a designer specifically? I know your father in sort of that world, but... <laughs> Yeah, so certainly growing, growing up in Iowa is a unique experience. Uh, definitely lots of ways to get in trouble and maybe ways that those in the urban settings do, cannot find. <laughs> uh, but no, I was a free roamer, very active youth. Uh, to be perfectly blunt and fair, school was not one of my primary focuses. So I was not one of the, the most studious kids but I was a lot of fun and very active and uh, enjoyed a lot of sports and everything else. Once I got into college, uh, I found my calling for school and really what I enjoyed doing. But prior to that, I guess if there's anything that really led me to design, my mother for a while ran a decorating department in a local uh, construction lumber yard, if you will. Oh, wow. And one summer, I remember back when there was these huge volumes of wallpaper books, I had to go through with a highlighter, or not a highlighter, a blackout marker, and hide all the order codes from anybody who'd go in and see the book that they liked and would want to go try to buy that wall covering from a third party and not buy it from the lumber yard. So I created this whole coding system that my mother would know what every page and what every book was and black them all out. So everybody had to buy that specific wall covering from her. Oh, that's funny. So she, yeah. So it was a, it was a very long summer, but my mom always had a, a passion for design or decorating, I would call it more so. And that was probably how I entered into the path of design. But truly, once I started building custom homes uh, is where I really found that true passion. Oh, wow. Okay. I remember those wallpaper books. My mother used to go to the same thing, like a construction store and check them out. You could actually borrow them and you know, lay them all over the house. I think that was the only way you could figure out what wallpaper uh, you wanted. You know? <laughs> Not like today with the internet. <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy, uh, you studied at the University of Albany. Um, you know, what was your intended career path kind of as you were studying there? What did you want to be? You know... Is interesting to say as Brian was was just saying kind of his uh, his passion stories. I started thinking through the different things I did before school and during school, and it it, it was always um, very interested in business models and to see how things changed and evolved. I, I think my my first like kind of entrepreneurial journey was probably around like seven or eight years old. Starting, I, I remember I was like arbitraging uh, candy on the school bus. I would buy it from the store and then mark it up and then try to sell it on school bus to my friends. And then I started um, taking like cinnamon sticks and making them, out of, you know, toothpicks and cinnamon to basically what white label my own product. <laughs> and I think that carried me through. Um, when I went to school, I was actually a double major, um, both business and, and Japanese. Oh, really? And <laughs> really. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, 
I, at an early age, um, I, I skipped a grade. I'd always been involved in AP, gifted and talented. And I just never really felt challenged, I think, in school. And I remember my freshman year, I took a Japanese course. And it was the first time I felt like, like I understood math very easily. Very always like I could see numbers and kind of just like understand them quickly. I could always understand like uh, economics and, and policy and social and, and very quick. But when I when I was like challenged with Japanese, it was a newfound like it was like hitting a brick wall, and I really liked it. Um, so it was, it was just that passion for learning something new. Um, I, I put that together with with business, and and obviously that led to a path in you know of retail. Right. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you still speak uh, Japanese? Uh, once in a while, after a couple of sake bombs, yes. <laughs> oh, nice. That's impressive. I, I knew you were a smart guy, but I didn't realize Japanese is like a whole other level. So that that's impressive. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't get to practice it too often. Um, Brian's seen after a couple of sake bombs that the Japanese and some of the Spanish get mangled together. <laughs> um, but yeah, I tell me, you know, all throughout school, I, I put myself through school. I had a lot of different types of jobs, uh, waiting, bartending, but also, you know, I was the um, the president of of the interfraternity council at Albany for a while and, and did a couple of different things where I was always trying to put together businesses and models, uh, charities. Like I just found a, a passion for kind of being able to understand both sides of the table and putting sure. it together. Wow. Um, retail wasn't really a calling, but it was, it was kind of that same, uh, you know, understanding of business models. Like I, I wanted a platform to learn more. And when I, when I fell in love with retail was that it was really just whether you're product business, you were dealing with a bunch of different stakeholders and ultimately you learn to put the customer first and think of, and see the, uh, the impact of what you were doing through the customer, the customer's eyes and think about pricing and you know placement and marketing and, and all these different components. And it just, uh, it just kind of like sparked something. And then from there, uh, I, I, I look at my, my, professional path. It, it was always related to a business model and iteration and trying to become either more efficient or effective. Yeah. And so you, so my, you know, my wife's in the commercial furniture, uh, you know, office furniture world. And we always joke around that, you know, at, at no point is there, your, is your career aspiration to be, you know, in, in office furniture, right? But there is, you know, there, I, I could spend a whole, you know, years long worth of podcasts interviewing some of the most successful, you know, entrepreneurial furniture people from dealers to, you know, reps even, and, and the way that that's all shaken out. So what, what made you take all of that business acumen and the retail experience and how did that evolve into commercial office furniture? I'll give you a 30 second version. Um, <laughs> I basically lost a bet. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, and honestly, what, it, not that far from the truth. Um, after, after Lord Taylor went to Gap Inc, uh, from Gap Inc, I went to Macy's and I'd always worked for public companies. Um, I had an entrepreneurial itch and I always felt like I was an entrepreneur in corporate clothing. Um, a friend of mine had actually started a commercial furniture dealership in New York. And we were at a at a barbecue, and he mentioned he talked about commercial furniture. And, and honestly, I didn't I didn't know what you know. I did, certainly knew what a desk and chair was, but that was about it. Um, but very quickly, I I learned a little bit about 
the commercial furniture dealership model and essentially how they were repping these major lines. And at the time, they, they come to a crossroads where they uh, had just assumed a new major manufacturer line um, and needed kind of like a C-suite business person to come in and run it. And at that time, I was like, I wanted to do something private and entrepreneurial and something I could have equity in and be an owner. Um, and it just kind of fell together. And what I, what I didn't realize is, you know, going into, and this is 15 years ago at this point, uh, the design and construction industry and the, the layers upon layers, some of which are really good and there for a reason, and some of which are just, you know, have been ripe for disruption. And I think I saw the opportunity of, of the disruption early on without understanding probably all the layers. But that, that was kind of the transition into furniture. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I, there's still plenty of room for disruption in that, in, in, in that industry and, and not only the whole, you know, real estate architecture design industry for sure. So, so Brian, you get your interior design degree, um, and you start out sort of, let's call it the more traditional path working in design firms. Um, and ultimately you make your way to New York city. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the various firms that you worked out and then ultimately how you meet Jeremy. Yeah, so I'll, I'll step back real quick. So I went to design school in Chicago, which is a great place to learn about architecture and design. For sure. Uh, but after growing up and living in the Midwest, I was tired of the cold. So the first place I went was uh, Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona. And right out of school, I initially started working with a residential architect designing multi-million dollar homes. Um, this was back in early 2000s and right when the housing market kind of crashed early on and only did that for about six months and then realized, well, most of my schooling was in corporate work. So should I leave the, the residential side, which when I was in high school, I built custom homes for my family and really enjoyed that, which is how and why I really went into residential architecture. Sure. Uh, but then once that happened, when I lost that job due to the markets, I joined a commercial firm in Phoenix and worked there for about three and a half years. And my career progressed very rapidly, very fast. And I was going to become partner way sooner than I wanted to be. And I really didn't want to be locked down in Phoenix. So I'm like, if I'm doing so well here, I may as well hop on a plane, go to New York and see if I can make it there. Right. Uh, so I did just that. I didn't have a job. I didn't know really all that many people in New York City and showed up and initially uh, did join a couple of friends who were working with an architectural firm and I just started working just part-time and interviewing. And I ended up landing at a really great small firm, which ultimately that's where I met Jeremy, called Stylander Design Group. And nice. it was just two of us. And we were located down off of Wall Street in the IMP building, the white building on the tower at um, Pine Street, which was a great building to be working in. We did most of the interior fit-outs in that building as well as other buildings in the Wall Street area. And it was a great education and foray into the New York City scene. Um, and the largest projects that we had actually done for QBE and reinsurance downtown Jeremy, when he was with uh, Workwell Partners as a dealer, was awarded that furniture project. Ah, okay. And that's actually how we met. Okay. And then you went on and you did work at, at Workwell for a little while, correct? Yeah. So part of joining a two-person firm, I didn't have a great network of people. <laughs> uh, I didn't really know a lot of people. And once I got to know Jeremy and the guys at Workwell, I'm like, this is be one great learning experience to learn more about furniture. 
But two, really a great platform for me to get out and uh, to meet other designers and firms in the New York City market. So it was really dual purpose, learn from the guys and help them, but also get to know the market of New York City, meet other designers and get more involved in the community. I love that. That's a really interesting way of getting to know the various firms sort of coming at it from from that side, right? And getting in there, meeting people. And then from there, you decide, okay, well, I like studios. I'm going to go work there. You do something very rare. You leave sort of the furniture or the non-design side and go back into the design side. Yeah, certainly for me, the passion play was not furniture. And it really was a stepping stone. Uh, there was a slight break from New York City in between that. Hannah and I had left New York for what ended up being 10 months. Huh. We had a grand plan to move to South Korea. And once we left New York, we, we were in Iowa City and got married as a, a stopover. And we were supposed to go to Seoul shortly thereafter. And she freaked out. She's like, I can't do this. She's like, you're going to hate it. You're not going to understand the culture. You don't speak the language. We're going to have to stay with my family. She's like, you're absolutely going to be miserable. And I don't want to be contributing to that. So she's like, we're in Iowa. Let's try it out. When I was there, I actually got a job at a, a design and engineering firm and was leading their interiors department because I was the only interior designer working there, <laughs> uh, which is also a really great experience and met a lot of great people there, learned a lot in my time. But uh, after 10 months, we both said, it's time to go back to New York. Nice. And so you're working at and, studios and you worked there for quite a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, just over four years. Okay. Yeah. So you're there. And then I remember... I remember at one point, probably in early 2015, uh, you came to our office. It was probably one of our like social things that we were having there when Hannah was still there. Um, and you kind of showed me a sketch of, of Jabberbox and, you know, kind of this is what you guys were thinking. And then I think Jeremy and I had met up at some point. Um, and so I'd love to talk about, you know, what is Jabberbox and tell us a little bit about it. Right. Why don't you continue on with the, the studio's lead-in? Yeah. So I, I guess to stop back to the origins of the story of Jabberbox, in between meetings, I was often faced with that dilemma that everybody was faced with. Where do you go? Uh, you could jump back on the subway and head back down to Soho where our office was, or try to grab lunch or something else. And there's really no great spot to go and be productive in those short 30 to 45 to 60 minute time frames. And I happened to be going from the Grace building to another building over by Grand Central and came across one of the POPs, privately owned public spaces, an interior car arcade, and took all my stuff out and was trying to work. And certainly within that moment, you're also wanting to people watch because there's so many different peoples from different walks of life, different countries, all kinds of different people coming in and whether they're trying to have lunch, whether they're having a social gathering, you have people playing chess off in the corner. Uh, and I'm just watching all these people interact. And then I saw these two construction workers come in and slide a table away from the floor to find a buried uh, floor box to plug in their cell phones to try to get some power. And security quickly came over and said, sorry, guys, you can't be using the power here. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So as I was trying to be productive, as I was watching other people try to be productive, I didn't have Wi-Fi. It was really before 5G and LTE, so the service wasn't great on my device. Really started thinking about how can people be productive outside those four fixed walls of the office that I was designing for at the time. 
where can people go on the go and be mobile? And really the original ideas of Jabberbox in the modern day phone booth came came to me in that moment. And I got really excited. And I started writing down notes every day and I was sharing it with Hannah. I'm like, what do you think about this? She's like, I would use it. I'm like, I would totally use it. (laughs) So a few weeks go by and Jeremy and I, uh, obviously, this is after I'd worked at Workwell and I was at studios at the time. He and I would get together and have lunch and talk about leads and all those things that you do uh, in business. And he's always an idea guy. Yep. And he riled off about 10 different business ideas of that he had that day. He's like, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? I'm like, eh, some are okay, some not so okay. Some of them are still very good, by the way, just, just so we're clear. Some of them are very good. <laughs> and that day I'm like, you know what? I have an idea I'll share with you. And really I'd gone through and gave him that whole example and my whole thoughts on the business. And he immediately connected and identified certainly as somebody who's even more mobile than I was at the time yeah. and being throughout the city. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was, I mean, a, I still have that list of ideas. Um, I think using the idea muscle and writing down 10 ideas a day is how we keep creative and how we keep keep learning. Um, but when, when Brian shared that idea, it was literally a, a light went out, light went off, sorry. And it was, I think the, the timing, um, I had just been introduced to WeWork um, and they had just started up around that time. And I, I made some friends over there and at the time, I was starting to do some work with Serendipity Labs mm-hmm. and Industrious and the flexible kind of like space was like, like co-working 1.0 was just really starting to, to happen nationally and somewhat internationally. Um, at the same time, I've always been very kind of community-based, like loving like Zipcar and different uh, like sharing programs and crowdfunding and all this stuff. And when Brian talked about this, um, it, it, it piqued an interest. And I, I remember taking the train home that day and just writing down, like, you know, modern day phone booth with Brian. And then, like, you know, this idea of, like, Zipcar for space. This, you know, we call it a business model, but it was probably more of a cocktail napkin at a time. Mm-hmm. And just this idea of, like, short places to, to drop into work, community-based, you know, pop in, pop out, have, have the tools you need to be productive um, on demand, reservable, and, and all these ideas, and, and really what Jabberbox is today was was kind of kind of the, the same idea that we that was genuinely put together uh, a few years back. So it, it's interesting to see how this like the the idea that I think the beginning of this you know formal thesis was around technology has facilitated mobility, mm-hmm. but physical infrastructure hasn't supported that mobility in in an efficient and effective method. You know, we fast forward a few years and and COVID happens and and the great work from home experiment happens. And we can all agree. I think we can all agree at this point that working from home is, is fine. In the short term, it's still viable, but I'll probably have a dog start barking or my kids barging in during this call. and, And it's not, you know, Productivity is okay, but it's not desirable in the long term. Agreed. And I think while the office is extremely important in the way we work, and the office is not going away, and it shouldn't go away, and for all the reasons that we know, like talent attraction and retaining, and teams, and serendipity, and collaboration, and and you know, 
learning and development. But at the end of the day, most people don't want to go back to the office five days a week. And working from home five days a week is not the idea. So we're, this hybrid model has really come to, to, to life. And you know, this our, our thesis five years ago, which is now called Work From Anywhere, nice. has, has populated. Yeah. So it's funny how that full circle, the timing is is more relevant and appropriate now than ever before. Yeah, I think the market is is essentially come to you at this point, which is definitely where you where you want to be. And so, how how old is Jabberbox at this point? <laughs> it depends how you count. <laughs> yeah. Well, that the, leads the into initial, my next I, question. Yeah, so my but my eight. well, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, the the initial idea is eight eight plus years now. Uh, the original idea came just shortly after Alexa was born, my daughter. Okay. Um, so I spent a lot of nights and weekends working on it while she was up in between feeds. And it was actually one of the best times to start a business because I was always up and I had a huge amount of thought time. So a lot of notes and a lot of everything going down on paper all throughout the day. That's great. And so um, when do you guys say F it? We're quitting our day job and, you know, we're going all in on this thing and this is going to be our primary, you know, vision and focus and thing that we're doing for, you know, we're going to make this a real company. Yeah, I'll, I'll start and give my son. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, so Shutterstock was one of my, my clients in New York City and we had moved them into the Empire State Building. And they're quickly outgrowing the space that we initially designed for them. So they decided to go out for RFP for another floor and they're interviewing us at studios as well as other architectural firms. And as I was in pitching for the expansion edition of their space, they as a client were sitting there at the table describing what they wanted in this space. And the gal who is the lead as I'm sitting there said, and I want these jabber boxes on the floor plan for my users to have space to go in for private phone calls. And the only person sitting in that room who knew about jabber box was me. <laughs> I mean, she had obviously heard about it, which actually goes back to Jeremy because he was already trying to pre-sell product <laughs> and was going through his network. But I'm sitting there pitching a project and somebody's saying they want to use my product that they don't even know is my product. And I'm like, it may be a bit of a conflict and it's probably time that I transition out of design work and really focus on Jabberbox full time. Wow. And Jeremy? Yeah, I remember that point pretty, it was a pretty fun, funny uh, moment. I remember Brian after calling and he's like, um, you know how we're doing nights and weekends? We might want to start thinking, of, you know, we, we've always seen this as a very, very big business, as a scalable business, a global, solving a global problem. I mean, the, the, the reality is that people need privacy. And I think the model that we built out and the experiences that we offer within the box, the places that we can activate, the way we work today, it's, it's a big, big addressable market. Um, but when Brian called me that day, I'm like, yeah, I think it's time to go all in. (laughs) So that that was a really interesting time. And then, so I think that was, say probably five years ago, right, right around that time period. Um, and we started, um, you know, the, the idea was that we, we 
you know, deploy these privacy pods in different public spaces. And because of, uh, you know, originally we thought, hey, let, let's take a furniture product. We approached many of the furniture manufacturers um, just between our combined relationships. And we said, hey, you guys are making like phone booths. Like we need some modifications. We want to integrate some technology and access control and integrate payment. And we had this idea about what the inside is. And, and frankly, none of them were that interested in it. They, they just saw they just saw their four walls, and that was it. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be inside offices, and that was it. And we want we were like, no, we want to put this in Grand Central Station. We want to put this in LaGuardia. Um, and then, literally, I, I remember going back to Brian. I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do because he he was like, we can't use that product. It's not designed and engineered for public space, health and safety, durability, construction. Imagine taking a phone booth and like putting in Grand Central Station, like it'll right. fall apart, we'll end up getting lawsuits and then we'll be figuring out our next big idea. And I was like, well, I'm not really sure what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this clear as day and Brian's like, let's just build it. I'll design it. I engineer it. And I'm like, you are batshit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was like, are you crazy? And then he's like, no, he's like, I've been working on sketches. I've been working on designs. Like, so we, you know, Brian, uh, to his credit, designed it, engineered it. Uh, we had some mutual relationships that we were able to, to source the product and get it built and manufactured. And, you know, and, and we actually sold product, uh, physical product off a of rendering before yeah. it was even made. I remember that. Yeah, well, I think, Brian, what's so impressive, because listen, as a designer myself, I have a million ideas and I'm always sketching them up and drawing them up, but never do I take that leap of actually saying, okay, now I'm going to you know, get this product manufactured. There is a huge leap from there. It sounds, well, it's really easy. So how the hell did you figure this out? How did you get, you know, who makes this thing? Where did you, you know, where does it come from? Like, how, how did you even find those people? It's like, you know, the, was it uh, Phil Knight from, from uh, the, the, the founder of Nike? Like he, he just decided one day he was going to go to Japan and start, you know, making sneakers in Japan and bringing them over, right? It's basically the same thing for you, right? Yeah, pretty much. And fortunately <laughs> for me, having built custom homes throughout my, my teens and part of my 20s, I had a really good understanding and grasp on how things go together and materials and materiality and what really needed to go into it to be successful. Uh, So immediately I knew I wanted steel. I wanted to powder coat it so it could be any color. I wanted to make sure the inside could have multiple different colors and really thinking through what is the designer and specifier going to want. And then once we really narrowed down the materiality, started really just doing an online search for manufacturers that could actually take part of it and that we could source it all and put it all together. Uh, And initially that took us up to upstate up in Rochester. We found a a metal shop, which is really part of a a co-op where they did metal work, their neighbor did paint, uh, another guy did hardware. And we tried to source as much of it out of one co-op as we could. And it really got us through our prototypes and truly the first units that we actually sold to a client. Hmm. It wasn't the right sustainable path going forward. Our costs were extremely high. (laughs) So we knew we had to refine and trim everything down and reduce costs. Um, And after that, found another great partner, which we can go into if if we need to. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So we went from Rochester to Milan, Italy. <laughs> so we, we made like the biggest jump you could make. It's like, all right, we, we did good enough, right? We made a really good, solid product. It was like a tank. I mean, it was steel on steel and super duper heavy, heavier than it needed to be. It certainly built more solidly than it needed to be. And through relationships, Jeremy had introduced me to an amazing metal and glass shop in Milan. And certainly didn't help. It's like, okay, so I have to go to Milan and meet them and do a factory tour. I'm like, let, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> let's go check it out. And, right. They had an amazing vision and immediately connected with our business idea, our product. They loved the idea of scaling and they truly saw the glo global aspect of the business. Uh, so from personality, capability, and everything else, they were a really great partner for us to truly go into our first manufacturing lot. Um, they are so bespoke that it actually became a bit of a hurdle. Okay. Uh, the, the product was beautiful. It was flawless in the way that you would expect an Italian product to be. But again, our costs were probably a little too high. Our costs to get product into the country were kind of obscene at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we had a beautiful product, but we knew we had to continue to iterate and refine, which is really how we look at the entire business. Iteration is key for everything that we do. Uh, design is core to every theory and thought within the business. And every part of it is just iterating and growing uh, every, every day, every month, every year that we've been in business. Uh, it probably drives Jeremy a little bit crazy because <laughs> things are so fluid, but uh, that's truly how I feel. We that's how we found success, and I think that's how we'll continue to find success. Wow. Christian, have you ever have you, have you ever heard the term um, "it is what it is until it's not"? Yep, <laughs> that's what I hear a lot from Brian. And I'm like, are we, are we pencils down? He goes, "Yeah, it, it, it is what it is, of course, until it's not." And then, <laughs> <laughs> so you've, had, I mean, at this point, you know, it's you, you're all over the place. Tell us a little bit about where you know where Jabberbox is, and then Jeremy, for you, while while Brian's doing the design work and, and you guys are figuring out how to manufacture this, you're, you're out selling this thing. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the early, in the early days, really, we really pushed the furniture because that's what we had to push. And that's how we, that's how we funded the business. Um, it was a great cash flowing way to not only fund the business, but we saw it as essentially kind of a, a marketing Trojan horse to be able to speak to enterprise about what their, problems were around mobility and outside the office, what are the things that they might want inside the office if they had mobile workers or if they had travel in between uh, sites or cities or countries. So it, it became kind of a uh, almost like an R&D effort. Um, so selling the units by day and then trying to figure out, you know, where we can activate and what the model is going to be for the public units. Like what, like, Truly, Jabberbox, and this is kind of a the, the can pitch, but Jabberbox is a technology-enabled network of on-demand micro-workspaces deployed in public spaces to give people the privacy and tools to work or relax anywhere. So thinking about that as kind of our North Star, um, it, it involved not only just you know getting product out the door, but it involved like what is what is the financial model? What is the consumer enabled technology? And this is before even you know talking about the technology piece, which um, you know Brian and our, our CTO Andrew Southern have done a remarkable job of of 
designing first and foremost, and then implementing. And it, it sounds like you guys have, uh, Christian, it sounds like you guys have, you know, really taken a technology forward approach yeah. to architecture. And that's kind of the way that, you know, build the vessel and then start filling it in with technology. Yeah, absolutely. And so you guys are everywhere at this point, right? I mean, tell, tell me about where, where you are with Jabberbox. We are on the precipice of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, we, we see the, the ability to go in a lot of different places. Um, from a, what we've designed in an ecosystem is we wanted to go after aviation first. We see the airport as a core use case and demographic of the consumer needing privacy on demand and privacy technology enabled privacy um, that's reservable. So today we're today we're live in seven airports domestically. Um, we're getting ready to go into probably close to another 18 airports by the end of the year that are that are in some form of contract process. Um, we're doing that, in fact, with a channel partner in, in aviation in North America and the UK. Um, we're starting to look at uh, really real estate asset classes that we can enter into. So we're, we're already alive. We've had a pilot in the um, Chicago Merchandise Mart for the past two years mm-hmm. in partnership with Bornado. And now we're starting to see, we're having you know developers, asset owners, uh, mall owners, like basically any kind of real estate vertical reach out and say, we need, you know, something like this because we're being asked, where do I go for Zoom calls? Do you, is there anything that's private and reservable in my space? Obviously the advent of flex working and hybrid co-working is, is rampant throughout, you know, every, every real estate asset class. And Jabberbox becomes that connected digital and physical ribbon between the spaces. Um, so it, there, it, there's um, a lot of things in the works. This is a, a, a great time to, to be part of Jabberbox and we're growing. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Brian, do you want to add anything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, just add, I'll add one more quick thing. So certainly the technology in the back end is hypercritical to our success from the management and monitoring our units. It's also allowed us to bring on assets outside of our own ecosystem. Uh, and I'll, I'll use this call to announce, if you log in and download our app, you'll see that there are seven Staples stores in the Boston area now on our app, where you can actually book the podcast rooms that they have included within their co-working space. Oh, wow. Again, is in seven stores in the Boston area. So we're now bringing on assets outside of our ecosystem that we're partnered with other stakeholders where we're bringing their, their products into our ecosystem. That's great. Yeah, and I, we touched on this a little earlier about COVID, but you know, I see very much like you guys do, the office isn't going away, but it is going to change. And the idea of being able to jump on a video call. So for me, Right. It's one of the things that I struggle with as, you know, one of the owners of the business and my clients is taking part in client meetings, you know, that are, you know, kind of anywhere and everywhere. Right. And so I've found that what's beautiful about COVID for me is that I can jump on a video call now and I can kind of go from call to call where as opposed to before, you know, I would have to say to the client, well, I'm not going to be at your meeting next week. I may have to miss the week after that, and maybe I'll come once a month, basically. But now I can jump on these calls. So as the office evolves, too, I think that sort of the mobile 
uh, ability to jump on a video call is really going to be key from everywhere. So I think you guys are perfectly poised. I even think in the educational world, there is that ability for teachers too. Um, you know, at my kid's school, when they when the teachers got to jump on a call with a parent, I've noticed that if there isn't a conference room or anywhere somewhere that they can have a quiet conversation, I've seen people jump into closets or around the corner and they're standing there with their phone. And And I think this ability to have a video call in private, read somewhere as I was reading about Jabberbox more that... Um, you know, it's like the introvert's dream is the the jabber box, right? And in, and in a sense, I get that because really what it is, is you do want privacy with these calls. And, and unlike the open workspace where you had a phone call that you would take out, out in the open work, video call is very different, right? You've got to concentrate. You've got to watch the people in front of you. You are trying to have a real meeting at that point. It's not just a phone call. And I think you guys are in a, a great position for that uh, in throughout you know, kind of every industry. So it's, uh, it's impressive. I'm, I'm, I'm always impressed by you guys. Uh, thank you, Christian. Yeah, it's, I mean, one quick point to like, as you're talking about different verticals and this is directionally the way we think about kind of attacking the problem, you start thinking about maybe non-traditional spaces um, and non-traditional means of like, whether it's higher ed and you think about use cases on campus. And whether it's studying or job interviewing or having that, you know, that call with family member, um, having, having to do, uh, have some, some me time. There's so many different types of use cases and, and areas. We think about hospitals and the fact that you can be, someone might be in, a, in we actually just had a call with uh, a friend of ours and, and advisor that, they, they were in the hospital for weeks and their wife was actually at their side, but still had work. And the wife was like a business development person that was always on the phone. And there was just nowhere in the hospital they could go mm. to have that privacy. And, and, you know, inside the box, we always talk about productivity, privacy, and wellness. And in those three modalities and use cases, this is probably another hour of podcast, so I won't go into <laughs> them right now. But I think that the more people think about you can be productive anywhere, the more that you need privacy and the tools to, to, to enable that productiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative, and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JPMorgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. So part of what we do here um, on this podcast is we take a critical look at how architects work with their clients and how our clients see us. Uh, you've both worked with with many architects, either directly or indirectly, and now as you know, a supplier, a vendor, entrepreneur. Um, so I'm a little bit, you know, I'm interested in your take on on this, and it kind of varies, I guess. Um, so. 
Brian, you've worked on some successful projects as a designer. Um, you know, in your opinion, you know, what do architects do well um, and what do they do wrong? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tough question. <laughs> I think if you look at the profession overall, I, I, I definitely see obviously the great need. I have a huge amount of respect for everyone working in the architectural community. I am a bit biased, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, but no, there, there truly is a, a need for professionals. And going off your question a little bit, one of my pet peeves is how TV and reality TV today seems to make everybody feel that they can do anything. And it's really diminishing the role of professionals, whether that's architects, whether that's interior designers, it could be your mechanic. It could be anybody who thinks they can now go on YouTube and learn something that they don't need to hire a professional. So I, I, I continue to be and will always be a huge advocate for architects. And I think I've, I've worked with great ones. I've worked with not so great ones. So you're obviously going to find that, that spectrum of people within any profession. But overall, I think architects, designers, the entire profession is very much needed and uh, something that people should look at with respect. And probably for me, practicing the amount of times that clients spoke down to us in the room and didn't really value us for the profession and services we we're providing. It was really hard when that's your passion, you're trying to deliver the greatest experience and space that you can for that client. And they just don't respect you because they think they know more. Yeah, wow. That's well said. I, I agree. So, Jeremy, what, uh, what annoys you about architects? <laughs> <laughs> Very good answer, Brian. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think this is probably true of a lot of professionals, but and I, I see a correlation between architects and doctors. Um, architects are usually very good at, you know, multiple things, but their core, their core strength is usually, you know, in one perspective. Um, what I've seen in the past is you, sometimes architects, much like doctors, probably have, they operate out of a certain side of their brain and maybe have a hard time seeing other perspectives. Um, the best architects that I've ever worked with um, ask a lot of questions and actually listen. Mm. Um, I, I think architects, sometimes they will have a, and this is, I not to offend anyone because I think you either recognize that you're this person and you probably already have heard this before, or you recognize that you, you're a better, that you're the listener as well. I think understanding kind of all their perspectives in the room, because as the professional, what I find is usually, uh, especially in the architectural setting, like they, they give the best advice and they definitely know the right thing to do. And they're very authoritative, mm -hmm. um, enjoy telling people what to do and very good at it. But sometimes understanding all the perspective and stakeholders at the table and understanding maybe Digging deeper than just, uh, uh, I think fact finding can sometimes be a, a challenge. Yeah, I thought that that very well, very well said, both of you guys. I appreciate that. Um, since you since you've both worked on the furniture side, I just kind of want to throw this out there. You know, how do we how do we improve that relationship between the architect and or designer and the the furniture dealer? Right. Um, what don't we really understand as as designers and architects about about the furniture dealer side? And either one of you can answer this. <laughs> Very loaded question. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I will start. 
I think as I was wrapping up my, my time at studios, there was a shift happening within design where we as design firms, our fees were getting slashed. We didn't have high budgets to be doing all the different things on a project. And so we started leaning on the, the dealers and their reps much harder than we ever had in the past. Meaning, whereas we would be going through and finding inspiration images and products in the design level, a lot of times that was getting pushed down to the dealers. Uh, so I think at that point, there became a little more respect from the, the design side to the dealers, whereas in the past and maybe prior to that, dealers and the people working at dealers is a very thankless job. And it's probably one of the problems that I had while working on the dealer side is I, I felt like I was never appreciated. Mm. Now, that's not true of every designer that I had worked with on a project. They recognize the late night deliveries and everything else with setup of a project. But oftentimes you're the last one hired in. You're kind of the last one out. You're somewhat of an afterthought of team member. You're never fully brought into that web of being really core to a project. Um, so it was very thankless. So I'm in one way happy to see that design firms are now leveraging people in dealerships to help them. And I think it's also allowed dealers to go out and hire better people as well. They're seeing that demand and they need to respond because if you're keeping the design firms happy, you're going to continue to be recommended for projects. Absolutely. And when I worked in the dealer, that was really one of my primary roles was to go out and be that liaison between the design firm and to make sure they're getting all the things that I would have expected as designer, they were also getting in return. And I think that was that was truly lacking in, in the industry when it came to dealers. And I think that is better now. Uh, having that mutual respect is very important. Yeah, one of the things that's come up in this podcast a lot about, you know, whether it's talking to engineers or architects or, or you know, uh, uh, any other kind of person that's part of this profession is the idea that we all really have to work together as a team. And kind of the earlier you are made a team member and you work together, the smoother the pro the, the process goes. And I, I think that's, I think technology kind of helps that along as well. And that's one of the things that we're doing. And obviously that's also one of the things that you guys are doing. So I think the more we can all get on the same page, we can actually move the profession forward um, and be friendlier and able to accomplish the things that we set out to do all on time and on budget and make our clients, you know, as happy as, as possible. So um, do you ever think there's a time where the furniture dealer goes away and it's all just sort of like an Amazon kind of thing and uh, it, it's just distributed that way? I think the model the model continues to to change. Um, the advent of direct to consumer is obviously kind of up into the model. Um, the the older days of of dealerships and kind of the opaqueness and murkiness on pricing. I mean, you have an artificial list price that's usually double whatever someone's buying it for, and the dealership is getting it for a certain percentage. Like those days are are kind of going away. Um, which I think is a really good thing. I think that to your point before, the only way that that actually the project and the client and all the stakeholders and all the professional services are are satisfied is if there's trust and relationship built on that team, and that and you and technology becomes a tool to enable that trust, um, which ultimately leads to better outcomes for everyone. It leads to you know whether that's 
quality of, of profession, uh, monetary compensation, just respect uh, in the job, everything else. Um, I think the dealer role continues to, to change and pivot, and it, it varies so much by market, frankly. Um, it's one, probably one of the things that you're, you're finding out as you talk to different parts, uh, people in different parts of the country or in the globe. It, it, it shifts so much. Um, I think the, the, the need for a middleman uh, between a manufacturer and client uh, will continue to change. I don't know if it'll ever go away, mm-hmm. but it, I think the shape of it changes the function. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, listen, I could talk to you guys forever. So last question for each of you. So bringing it all back around, if you had to do it differently as far as your career uh, is concerned, what might you have changed? Uh, Brian. Ooh, probably the best way for me to look at that is I, as my daughter's now eight, I spend a lot of time thinking about her future. So that's probably more important to me than redoing my life. It's getting her the right path to do hers right and maybe avoid some of the pitfalls and things that I didn't do properly. Um, we having two designers in the family, the one thing we always do when she moves a chair or redecorates anything, we're like, no, don't become a designer. <laughs> it's the first thing that comes out of our mouth. And I guess if there were one thing that I wish I would have done differently in my career, and one thing that I want to instill in her is the importance of, importance of finance and get her set off early and understanding the importance of money, investing, uh, and really setting herself up in life because her biggest passion right now is horseback riding. And so she's chosen a very, very expensive sport to start at a very early age. Yes, it is. And if she wants to continue it when she gets out of the house, she uh, certainly needs to be able to afford that on her own. So <laughs> I think the financial aspect, I wish going even back to schooling, I wish students of my age growing up had more education and finance along the way. And I think that's one spot that uh, I'm hoping that she will find more education and tools along the way as she grows up. Yeah. I can't believe she's eight. Wow. It's crazy. (laughs) Every day, man. Every day. (laughs) Jeremy. Um, You know, I think these are, it's always a a funny question when someone asks like what you would do different. Um, Frankly, there aren't many things I would do different. I don't really have any regrets. I feel like I, I've always had a bias toward action. Um, I think I would I would actually just move faster, uh, frankly. And because I think you fail fast, you fail forward. Uh, you know, you whatever whatever the the ism is of the day. I think you just have to move quickly. You commit, and mistakes are always going to be made. But it, that those are the learning points. I, I tell my kids, we don't fail. We either win or we learn. And I, I think that that's just a, you know, approach and kind of paradigm of, of, of life today. And I, and every generation says things move faster and get more, you know, the amount, the amount of change in the last five years versus the last 50 and everything else. Not, that's not going away. And, and life isn't going to get slower. Um, everyone has enjoyed, I think, if, if you had a perspective of COVID as the gift of time, you've enjoyed this downtime, but I hope this gift of time never comes again in our lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I couldn't agree more. That, that That's great. So Jeremy and Brian, uh, you've been featured on CNBC, the New York Times and Forbes. I can't thank you enough for being my guest here. 
on the Anti-Architect podcast. Um, great conversation. Thank you guys so much um, for your personal stories and to sharing the vision of, uh, of Jabberbox. Uh, to see and read more about Jabberbox or just go and purchase one, uh, you can visit their website at www.jabberbox.com and I'll spell it J-A-B-B-R-R-B-O-X.com. So thank you guys. I really appreciate it.